there's only one song. And I'm like, wait, nobody. <laughs> anyway, that's the way to get things going in the morning, is it not? Oh, my goodness. I, I don't remember if I shared this or not. I went to a concert a couple weeks ago. Uh, my, one of my daughter's favorite bands um, that we went to go see. Uh, and she can tell you how she discovered that band. Um, but anyway, um, is it not true? Oh, it's absolutely true anyway. And so uh, we went, we drove over to Cincinnati to go to the show because we're crazy and, you know, get home one thirty like kids and things like that. But anyway, went to the show and at the show I was like, man, boy, the people here are so involved. They love this band. They love this music. They're just worshiping. Being the, and yet we come to a place like this and people don't worship the creator of the universe. What, what's our whole, you've all been to shows. Maybe your style is country. Maybe your style is orchestra. Maybe whatever. Maybe it's just the band and choir that you go and celebrate your grandkids or your kids at. And you just go crazy at their sporting events, cheering for them, applauding for them. And then we come and we sit here in silence. Out of respect? No, 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 no. That's not what God asks us to do. He comes come to worship. That's why we're here. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The energy that it provides, it's just, it's just something about it. It's not a feeling. It's not an experience. It's what we were created to do. Do you understand that? I don't know. I don't know if you do or not. That wasn't very convincing. I won't lie. <laughs> that, was, that was weak. That was the weak sauce, as some people would say. Anyway, let's go Lord in prayer before we dive into his word this morning. Father God, as we dive into these teachings of Jesus, as he talked about his promised second coming, may our hearts and our minds be fully open to receive your words this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Did you spend one moment this last week thinking about the return of Jesus? Did you change one conversation you had because you know for a fact that Jesus is coming back? Did this fact, this reality, did it inspire you to repair one broken relationship did it change one thought that you had? Did it alter one word that you spoke? Did it encourage you or discourage you from doing anything this past week? Or did it even come to mind once? Hopefully you remember that last week I opened with the exact same questions. If you were here, you watched online. If you weren't here, if you weren't here, if you weren't here. Would you please take for a moment those words, let them kind of echo in your spirit, hear them for the first time, and would you please follow up by going online and listening or watching last week's message. It was a very direct challenge based on those concepts, and I'm not going to be able to fully repeat or review all of that today, but it is essential. For the rest of us that hopefully remembered, that sounds familiar. Where did I hear that before? Last week, I pray that this week you weren't caught off guard by that question. As a matter of fact, I pray that this week you have an answer to that question. And the answer, I hope, is the word yes. Yes, as a matter of fact, I did think about the return of Jesus throughout the last week. And yes, it did inspire me in different ways throughout the week. 
I hope that that's the truth, and I'm going to continue to ask these questions. And if it did, if it did inspire you to do something, to say something, to repair something, to just change something about your way of life, would you please share that with us? We don't hear enough of your story. Your story, your relationship with Jesus, we don't know what's going on unless you tell us. Could you tell us how this idea, how this thought of every single day, at least once a day, thinking about the reality that Jesus is coming back, could you share with us your stories about how that is changing you, how that is changing the way you are doing things? We want to hear them. We want to share them with others. We're a big old family here. We got to know what's going on in each other's lives, and somebody might have a great idea for how this is inspiring them. You see, Christ is coming. And we've got to be ready. None of us know how long we have in this moment, so we must be ready. And we'll always throw in this challenge. If you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, if you have not repented of your sins and asked for his forgiveness, then today is the day because you're not ready (laughs) in any way. What are you waiting for? If you have committed to the living Jesus then his imminent return should, should influence everything we do and say. This week, we're going to continue to look at these teachings from the book of Luke where Jesus talks about his second coming. There are three passages that we're going to look at today. The first is in Luke 12. Luke 12. So you can go ahead and turn there if you've got a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from the seat underneath of you. Use your phone, your tablet, whatever you've got. It doesn't matter to me. This first passage seems to take place right on the heels of the teachings of last week. So just a continuation of the same conversation Jesus was having last week. As Jesus finished talking about the division that would be caused because of his coming, then he shifts to the unwillingness of people to interpret the times in which they're living. Now, it's a really odd shift. It doesn't really seem to make much sense. So there probably was a reason why Jesus shifted to this topic It's quite possible that as they met there in Jerusalem, potentially at the temple, the people looked off to the horizon on the west and they literally saw a storm approaching. They saw incoming weather because you could do that. Jerusalem kind of sits up on a hill, on a mountain, if you will. And they began talking about it. And as they began talking about it, Jesus had a perfect segue into his next lesson. For all we know, Jesus could have caused the storm to get people to think about that in order to bring this topic up. Here's what we know. Jesus knew what the people that day there needed to hear, just like he knows what we need to hear today. So let's read the text. We're in chapter 12, verse 54. 54. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, hey, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows and says it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you do not know how to interpret this present time? Oh, how man longs to interpret the times. For us, weather has become a bit too, I'll put in quotes, predictable. I'm not going to comment on the accuracy of these predictions, okay? But we have detailed, I mean detailed, daily forecasts, right? Down to the hour of every day. We have apps that tell us exactly to the minute when it's going to start and stop raining, do we not? As we went to that concert and we parked, it began to pour down rain. So we opened our app and we literally said, oh, it's going to stop raining in seven minutes. 
in seven minutes we got out of the car because it had stopped raining. I'm not making this up. I'm dead serious. It's, that's just, we have these things. We have long-range weather forecasts. They go out forever, 30 days and, and beyond. <clears throat> They're never right. But, but we have them, right? We have them. In Jesus' day, all they could do was look at the sky. Maybe that was easier. Just saying. Maybe we should go back with it. Here was the thing. You could see. If you've ever been out west um, where the sky is different because of your elevation and you can see an entire storm system from where you sit, you can just watch it. Just roll right on through. It's amazing. They had that similar kind of effect here in Jerusalem. They could see the storms coming in from the Mediterranean Sea. That's the only place weather ever came from was the Mediterranean Sea. It was obvious. Jesus addressed another phenomenon. The south winds would begin to blow, bringing in the air off the desert. It said that the temperature could go up 30 degrees in one hour when the wind shifted out of the desert, as you could imagine. The people knew what was coming. Our focus today isn't on weather anymore. No, man is intent on trying to interpret some other things. Maybe one of the biggest things that humanity is bent on trying to find are its origins, Apart from God, we will go to any length, and I mean any length, to try to do that. Most recently, if you watch the news and things, you know that this last winter we, we launched this little thing called the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, if you haven't studied this, you haven't seen it, you haven't gone online, please do, because the pictures are spectacular. You have never seen anything like this in your life. I promise. It is incredible. I asked David to pick out a few of his favorites to show you if you haven't seen some of these incredible images. The telescope currently sits about one million miles. We'll go to any length to try to figure this out. A million miles away from Earth. And it's estimated to cost around $10 billion. So who knows how much it really costs, right? Exactly. It's said that this space telescope can see one or 13.6 billion light years away. <clears throat> I don't know what that is. I, I have no idea what that even means, honestly. It's said that a light year is equal to about 6 trillion miles so I guess that means via numbers, 13.6 billion times 6 trillion equals how far this stuff is away. I don't know that number. That doesn't exist in my world. I, I can't figure it out. I can't understand it. Don't try to tell me what it is to the 10th, to the I don't. I don't care. It's big, way bigger than any of us can understand. Let me read to you NASA's mission statement here. According to NASA, and I quote, the James Webb Space Telescope will be a giant leap forward in our quest to understand the universe and our origins. I'll let you think about that for just a moment. The James Webb Space Telescope will examine every phase of cosmic history from the first luminous glows after what they call the Big Bang to the formation of galaxies and stars and planets to the evolution of our own solar system. Oh, how man wants to try to prove its theories. God, man, man doesn't want there to be a God, you see. Man doesn't want there to be a God to give credit to, doesn't want there to be a God to give answer to, no God to bow before. 
But you see, when I look at these pictures as a follower of God, there's only one thing I can do. And that's be even more amazed at my God and his creative power. His hand is incredible. And it's all over these pictures. I don't care how scientific you are. When you look at these images that are coming across, you are in awe of them. And there's no way our human mind can fully grasp or understand them. The awesome size and the nature of our universe is incredible. But what man is trying to do is to peer into the distant past in order to discredit an absolutely certain future. I don't know if you understand that or not. Man is looking to the past to try to convince us that there is no God, there is no creator, no savior, no judgment, no heaven, no hell. That there's just this. That's it. No absolutely certain future, no final destiny for man. Here we are, 2022, and what are we doing? We're still looking to the stars for our answers in life. Some things never change. We just use bigger, fancier, and way more expensive methods to try to find answers that are actually right in front of our face. And furthermore, beyond that, they're actually right inside of us from the day we're created. Man has within them this thing Paul describes to us that we could just know. We just know there's something greater just based on creation alone. Last week, our theme was two words. Can anyone remember those two words? Be ready. Be ready. Ready Is mankind ready for Jesus' second coming? No. No. In this teaching, Jesus is simply pointing out the obvious. So you can go and look at the weather and figure out some really obvious things. Well done. Great job. But you can't understand what I've been sharing with you. How are you missing it? Why aren't you using the same critical thinking skills you use to develop the James Webb Space Telescope and put it into orbit and do everything that we can do to create that? Why don't we use a little bit of that energy to praise and worship our God? It would really be simple, and it'd be much easier, actually, to figure that out than it would be all of this. Why don't you do that? By this point in Jesus' ministry, he's calmed the storms. He's fed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. He's restored the lame, gave sight to the blind, healed the sick, cast out demons, even raised the dead. He's taught on nearly every single element of human life. He's demonstrated in nearly every way possible exactly who he is. And yet the people can't interpret the signs. They can't figure out who he is. No, that's not it at all, actually. It's not that they could not do it. It's that they would not do it. They could not see because they were unwilling to see. They persisted in their unbelief. They did not want to believe. And since they did not want to believe, they continued in their opposition to Jesus. We live in a world that is absolutely still searching for signs, searching for answers, and they will never be satisfied Never be satisfied. Truly, even when our answers point directly to God, and I believe as these images complete, continue to come out, there'll be some images that point to things that science don't want us to know because it doesn't further their theories very well. Truly, when we find things that even point to God, then man does what? We set out to disprove those things that we find because we don't want them to be true. It is remarkable how persistent mankind can be in this area. 
In the end, every individual has to make a choice to believe or not. Until then, we will search. We will search. Jesus closes this teaching with a little warning to the people he's talking to, and I believe to us today as well. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Verse 47. As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary might drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus' illustration here is very simple. It speaks to our need for repentance. He tells us that, hey, if you're getting ready to be sued, you're getting ready to get into trouble, you need to figure out some way to try to prevent that from happening. You got to work out a deal. You got to talk with this person that's wanting to drag you off into court. You should work hard to be reconciled to that person. You don't want to have to go before the judge. You don't want to risk jail time, especially if you know you're guilty. You got to find out what it takes to make things right, to repay your debt before the punishment is handed down. That's his message to us today. We just must come before him. He's already paid our debt. We just have to allow him to do it. The signs were there then. The signs are no less here now. We too must repent before it's too late. We must be ready before our God. <clears throat> Did you realize every time we gather, every time we read, every time we study, every time we worship, every time we pray, God is looking to change us every single time. He is looking to move us closer to him. He is looking to mold us more into his image. He is looking for us to align with his will in our lives. And each of us is left with a choice. Will we allow these things to happen in our life? Will we help create the environment in our lives where these changes can then occur? Or will we simply leave each Sunday trying to figure out what we want to eat for lunch and completely forget about what God's word has challenged us with this morning. I, I laugh, but is it true? We don't allow the word of God to have any impact upon our lives whatsoever. The choice is ours. The choice is ours. And as we switch gears to the next teaching, this teaching just might be a stark and maybe painful reminder of that choice. You probably don't even have to turn the page in your Bibles because we're going to Luke 13, 22. Luke 13, 22, it's probably on the same page you're already on. <clears throat> Jesus then went through the towns and villages, it says in verse 24, or 22, teaching as he, as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Hmm. Are only a few people going to be saved? Now, Luke's reminding us here that Jesus is on a journey. He's headed toward Jerusalem. Luke started this journey back in 951 where he stated that Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. Nothing would stop him from his ultimate destination of the cross for me and you. And on this particular day, he stopped to teach in this specific little spot he had a crowd following him. Yes, the 12 were there, but there were others that continually traveled with Jesus. We do not know who asked this question. We don't know why they asked this question. But Jesus' response that we're about to read gives us a very firm reminder of how hard it is to get into heaven. Now that might come across a little weird to some of you. Some of you might have heard just what I just said and, and kind of, whoa, wait a minute, hard hard to get into heaven? I, that's, that's not what I've been told. 
All I've been told is how easy it is, right? All you got to do is stand up or say a prayer or raise your hand or get wet. That, that's all you have to do to be saved, right? Ah. The words of Jesus um, open our eyes to a little more of the truth of salvation. And he set up with this question, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? It is an interesting question. Did the person that was asking wonder, am I included in that number? Were they worried? Maybe that they weren't. What was their motivation? You see, this is something that man obsesses about. We want to know numbers. How many people are going to heaven? We evaluate and we think, well, if only a few people could enter, well, that's not fair. That's not fair at all. Everybody should get to go, right? That's what man says. All roads lead to heaven, so mankind says, if such a place even exists. So Jesus tells us, can everybody be saved or just some, just a few? Now on a side note, because that's Christianese, that is Christian terminology, Christian language that we're using, talking about salvation and being saved. If you walked up to just a random stranger on the street and asked them the question, are you saved? What do you think their response would be? I honestly, I think their first response would be, from what? If you're speaking to them, and they're not in some kind of immediate physical danger, then they might have a hard time understanding why you would even ask this question. It doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't to someone that doesn't know what we're talking about. It's likely they're not even aware of what they need to be saved from. So what you need to do is explain it to them. And it's very simple to take a moment and tell them, hey, um, God would like to save you. From what? Oh, he would like to save you from judgment. He would like to save you from a penalty um, that all of us deserve based on all the wrong that we've done in our life. He, furthermore, he would really like to save you from an eternity apart from him in a place of eternal punishment, a place reserved for those that reject the salvation of God that he offered through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about what he did for you. We can help define that for them very quickly. As a matter of fact, um, he would like to save you. And quite honestly, he's the only one who can. He's the only one who can. Verse 24, Jesus said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, many will try to enter and not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. Wait a minute, hold on. Just, did Jesus just tell us that we must make an effort? Ah, uh, make every, yeah, okay, yeah, just, just, just check in. In Jesus' day, it was thought that when the Messiah came, if you were a Jew, you're good. Nothing else needed to be done. He came to save them all, period, end of discussion. No questions asked, you're in. In today's religion, well, I thought all I had to do was pray a prayer. Maybe show up to church every once in a while when it was convenient. Are you telling me, pastor, that there's more? Yes. Yes, I am. Several modern English translations, including the one I just read from, miss the whole point of this passage. The translation is bad. This one said, make an effort. Some of them say, work hard 
at doing this. Both of those fall short of the language that Jesus used. The Greek word very specifically here is the word agonizima. Agonizima. It means to strive or even to fight. If your English ears were listening carefully, you actually heard an English word in the middle of that, didn't you? Agonizima. Agonize. Who's agonized in this room before? Jesus uses the same word in in the book of John. John records him in chapter 18, verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight, agonizima, to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You see what Jesus is trying to get at. We are to strive. We are to fight to enter through that narrow door. Fight to stay on that narrow path. It will not happen by accident. It will not happen if we just stroll through life thinking, I'm good. I'm saved. We have to strive to enter that door. The world will keep us. It will try to keep us from going down that path. It will kick us off, throw us off. It will do all kinds of things. Wide is the path. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And seemingly everyone is heading that way. And maybe on the surface it seems easier, but any of us that have traveled for very long down that road knows it's not actually easier. As a matter of fact, it messes you up real good. (laughs) But everyone else is doing it. Have you not learned that lesson from your mama yet? Just because everybody else is doing it, that's usually the reason not to do it. That's how you got to remember. We have to fight. Now, if you're listening very closely to Jesus' words, then hopefully there's a question that's begun echoing in your mind. Fight what? What are we fighting? What are we striving against? Let's take a moment and define what this struggle is. Is against. We go backwards to Luke 9 23. Jesus said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very own self or soul, depending on your translation? We have to strive to deny ourselves, to put God first, to put the needs of others before the needs of our own. We have to lose our life, our desires, and give them over to him. We have to strive to give him full control. Jesus very specifically tells us if we hold on to our life and the way that we want to live, he guarantees us that we will certainly lose it. If you win this world's life, you will ultimately lose. But if you lose according to the standards of the world, then you will ultimately win for all eternity. What's the point if you gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? This is the battle. This is the battle within each of us every day. This battle is over repentance. Do we genuinely want to leave behind our past and our old ways in order to follow Jesus into the future? It's honest self-denial, self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. That's, the Spirit gives that to us. We can't find it on our own. I don't want Jesus to fix my life. I don't want Jesus to fulfill my dreams. I don't want Jesus to do this. I don't want Jesus to do that for me. I instead want to give my life up for him. I want to place my desires in his hands. It is no longer my life to live. It's all his 
Do you see the struggle? Do you see how a true follower must strive or fight to stay on that narrow path and enter that narrow door? Now, here's the awesome part of it. We don't have to do this striving thing on our own. It begins with the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit is here with us to guide us, even to give us strength for this battle. And it's only by this strength that I could ever, ever hope to make it. Jesus also left us the church, one another. He gave us a list of more than 38 one another's in the New Testament, a list of things, how we are supposed to care for each other, lead each other, encourage, strengthen, build up one another. This striving was never meant to be done alone. This narrow path that we walk on was never meant to be walked alone, and that narrow door was never to be entered alone. We're supposed to do this thing together. So what? What if we don't make the effort? What if we're unwilling to deny ourselves? Well, Jesus in this parable tells us we're going to be left standing outside knocking, pleading to come in. We were not ready for the master to close those doors, and he will answer us, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, but we ate and we drank with you. And you taught in our streets. We sat in your church, Jesus. And he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evil doers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. Then you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be thrown out. People will come from the east, the west, the north, the south, and take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last, who will be first and first who will be last. Now, this is not a new teaching from Jesus near the end of his ministry, not at all. Way back at the beginning of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 13, he says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Only a few find it. Any claim that this is an easy path is not from Christ. And any teaching that says that all roads ultimately lead to heaven is a lie from Satan deceiving all of those on those roads. Jesus is very clear. Please, please, please do not be confused. Now, there is one other thing that I must address here. Depending on your upbringing and, and things like that, you might have heard something there that's a little disturbing to you. Some people might try to twist this claim into saying that this is some kind of salvation by works. Meaning that something you do causes you to be saved. I'm going to say this very carefully. This is a salvation by work. Singular. We're all saved by a work. Done for us. By Jesus. On the cross. We are saved by his work. No work we could ever do has the power to save us. It is only by his work on the cross and his defeat of sin and death that we can be saved at all. The striving I do is not to be saved. It is to deny myself and become more like Jesus. These people at the door thought they were with Jesus. Somehow they were deceived or chose to believe that they were saved, even though they didn't truly know their master. 
They did not know their master's will. If you've been with us the last several weeks, we've talked about parable after parable after parable where Jesus has these stories of his servants and his masters not knowing his will. And then we saw the results for each of those people. They refused to deny themselves. Our choice is to enter through the narrow door. It's made daily. In fact, it probably needs to be made several times a day if we really think about it. We can't just take up our cross on Sunday, carry it with us to church as if that's a burden, going to worship, and then lay it down the rest of the week. I also want you to notice that Jesus never answered their question, did he? How many people, Jesus? You know, he never said. He never said. What's really cool is that he could have. You realize that? Like Jesus could have dropped a number right there. The exact specific number of every person, past, present, and future that would ultimately end up in his kingdom. He could have just given them a number and been absolutely correct right in that moment. Have you ever thought about that? He could have taken a step further. He could have started reading the list of names of every single person through all of human history that was saved and is in heaven with him. He could have done that. He could have done that. But you know what? He didn't. He didn't. Instead, he focused on something much, much more important. You see, because it doesn't matter what the number is. It does not matter how many people will go to heaven. What matters is that you are one of them. That's it. That's what matters. And you want to take it a step further? What matters is that you reach out to those that are around you and you share this narrow path with them because you want them to be one of them with you. That's what matters. Are you ready? Are you ready for the master to come home? Are you ready for the master to wake up and close the door? Are you striving to enter through that narrow door? There's one last teaching to close things out today, and it's come from um, chapter 17. Chapter 17. So we've got to flip a little further to the end of, of Luke. <clears throat> for those of you that use a Bible, um, physical handheld Bible in here, I must tell you, I love hearing the sound of page flipping. I, I want to I contact you version and say, hey, whenever you change chapters, you know, when you swipe or you hit the, can you add that page turning noise when they do it? Like that would be so easy for them to do, right? I think it, it, programming, it seems very simple. I would love for them to do that. I love that sound. So if you have a Bible, please make noise while you're turning the pages. I love to, I love to hear that. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful sound. Probably not just to my ears either. Verse 20. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming and when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man, but you will not see it. People will tell you here he is. There he is. Don't go running after those people for the son of man in his day will be like lightning which flashes and lights up the entire sky from one end to the other. But he first must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. couple quick notes on the opening. Since John the Baptist, one of the very first characters we spent time on in the book of Luke, he'd begin proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near. As Jesus began preaching in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he declares that the kingdom of God has come near, is among them. He has ushered it in. And here, Jesus is just making it even more clear. As he does that, Jesus turns around and he addresses specifically his disciples. Now, he could have been referencing rumors that people were spreading in that day. It's possible. He could have been talking about the future where it refers to those that talk about the, coming, the kingdom of God as if it's here or that it, Jesus has returned or is here now. 
There have been no shortage. Those of you that have a few more years of experience in life can probably remember many times when people claim that Jesus was coming back on this day or in this month or this sign meant that Jesus was coming back at this time. Whether it was a date or a whatever, you've remembered those things. As you know, all of those have been absolutely completely wrong. So move on. Jesus warns us, don't be fooled. Don't focus on those false cries, believer and pre-believer alike. When Jesus returns, everyone will know it. It will happen all at once, and everyone all at once will know it. End of discussion. There will be no questions to be asked. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Life if you will, as we know it, will be proceeding as normal. Noah preached for 120 years about the righteousness of God while he built an ark. The people rejected his teachings and they were lost forever. So it will be in the second coming. For many, it will be business as usual until it's too late to choose Jesus. Verse 28. In the same, in the same it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus gives a second example of with Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The people continued in their evil ways till the very, very end, refusing to repent, and they too were destroyed. Another important point to make here is this. I think Jesus made this point for us, not for them. I really do. Jesus references two of the hardest to believe, most often questioned stories in the entire Old Testament in this short little passage. Why do you think he did that? I believe he did it because he wanted to vouch for them. He knows they're true. He knows they actually occurred. And he wanted us to know that he knows that they actually occurred. These were real life events that actually really happened. And Jesus confirms them both. So we should believe them as truth as well. And that is important, folks. As we study the word of God. Verse 30. It will be just like this on the day the son of man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. Jesus is warning those listening, and I think us today, when Jesus returns, it's too late. Your fate has been sealed at that moment. Your choice has been made. Either you've left behind in favor of a new life with Jesus, your old life, or, or you've held on to that old life your entire existence, and now even that will be taken from you. Now, Jesus throws in that little story about Lot again. If you don't know the story of Lot's wife, you can read this for yourself. Genesis chapter 19 is where you'll find it. Here's a brief, 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 brief summary. The angels had come, met with Lot's family, said, y'all got to get out of town as quick as you possibly can. And when you do, don't look back. They all left town and his wife looked back. And it says that when she looked back, she was immediately turned into a pillar of salt. There's even a famous monument in the desert outside of that area of Israel even today that they call the Lot's wife, okay? Jesus' reference here reminds us when we accept him, we turn to him, don't look back. Don't look back at your old life. Leave it behind. Keep striving toward that narrow door. Live in the new life that he alone gives us. Jesus then goes on to describe something very specific that will happen the moment he returns. It's in verse 34. I tell you on that night when he returns, 
Two people will be in one bed, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord? Where is this going to happen is what the disciples are asking. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Now, depending on your biblical upbringing, where you grew up in church or not, you might not have heard this, but this sounds a lot like a teaching that, that some face proclaim called the rapture. That's a topic for another day, but here's what I can tell you. This passage does not describe a time when believers are taken away and those left behind, if you're familiar with the books, are left behind to wonder what's happening. No. Now, this is the second coming of Jesus. Everyone knows what's happening. This is the moment he arrives and believers are caught up with him and the evil servants are left to face judgment. This is the separation from the righteous and the unrighteous. There are no questions. No one's wondering where you went or what happened. The disciples then ask a really obvious question. Where is this going to take place? God, like, we want to be watching for this. Where, where is this going to happen? They don't understand. They think this is going to happen in Jerusalem. Because their entire universe has centered around Jerusalem since the beginning of their faith. They don't understand this is a worldwide event. So Jesus doesn't actually answer their question. Instead, he just gives them the final picture, a disturbing picture at best, of dead bodies. Of dead bodies left from those that were apart from Christ being circled by vultures. A devastating end for those that chose the wide path that led to destruction. Church, are we discerning the times? Are we sharing with people the things that they need to hear to meet their Savior? What are we focused on? Are we ready? Personally, first of all, are you ready to meet Jesus? Whether he returns or calls you home, are you ready to meet Jesus? And if you are, that's awesome. That means that daily you're thinking about him coming again and you can't wait for you but you're deeply disturbed because there's others you know that don't know him yet. So is there an urgency to your message? Or you just haphazardly hope that maybe one day a person might stumble in here and maybe hear about Jesus. I guarantee if they come in here, they're going to hear about Jesus. That's a promise I can make to you. But I can't guarantee that they'll be here to hear about Jesus. Are you and I daily striving to enter through that narrow door, to stay on that narrow path? Are we fighting our flesh and this world around us so that we live for Jesus and put him above everything else? Are we putting the needs of others ahead of our own? I'm gonna ask as a reminder, will you spend time every day, not just this week, but the rest of your life thinking about the second coming of Jesus? And will you allow these thoughts to turn into action, to turn into action before they're too late? Now, the rest of this service is truly a, a time to come before God for whatever that need is in the moment. You could be coming before God here in just a moment. We're going to break bread together. We, we've got our communion cups ready to go. If you didn't, we'll have some ready. But you're going to have a chance to come before God and worship him in that way. You're going to have a chance to come before God and repent if that's what needs to be done. You're going to have a chance to come before God and maybe accept him for the very first time in your entire life ever. To confess his holy name and to be baptized into a new life that only he can offer. And begin the walk down that narrow path. But not alone. We don't want you to go alone. Allow the spirit to move in your life. Father God, as we... 
come before you closing this time of, of teaching with a time of response. Father, we all need to respond. I, I, don't, uh, I don't claim to know anything about anyone in the room, but I know that every single person listening today in person or online needs to respond. We all need to come before you today with something. It may just be praise. Father, it literally may just be praise for the incredible ways that we see you moving in our lives. Okay, why don't we do that? Father, it may be for repentance. Father, only we know what deeply is going on in our personal lives, in our minds, in our hearts. But you know. Maybe we need to bring that before you today. Father, maybe we've come to realization these last two weeks that uh, maybe we're not ready. Maybe there is some barrier that we have placed between our lives and you, and, and we've gotten diverted off that narrow path. Father, may today be the day the Spirit guides us back onto the path you would have us travel. And Father, we know, as always, there are people listening that have never made that decision for you. They might not even known there was a narrow path, truthfully, until your word was shown them today. And there's something about being left out, being left on the outside that is deeply troubling to their spirit, as it should be. Father, we know that's the conviction of your Holy Spirit moving them to a place where they can come forward and accept you as their only Savior, their only hope in this world and beyond, to repent and to begin a new life with you, bringing their struggles, their challenges, the sin that they face, and asking you for the help they need to overcome each and every one of those obstacles in their life. Father, we thank you and praise you this morning.